Leaders from around the world are convening in Glasgow, Scotland, for a meeting called COP26. History has shown that when nations come together in common cause, there is always room for hope. Working side by side, we have the ability to solve the most insurmountable problems and to triumph over the greatest of adversities. The goal, slash carbon emissions and stop global warming well short of two degrees Celsius. The emergency climate comes down to a single number. The concentration of carbon in our atmosphere. The importance of this moment in human history is truly hard to overstate. According to a 2019 study in the journal Science, about a quarter of all greenhouse gases are attributable to the world food system. And drilling down a bit further, we see that raising livestock for their meat and dairy products are particularly harmful, accounting for 15% of greenhouse gases. That's about as much as all the cars, trucks, ships, and airplanes combined. So what can be done? Eating less meat is one obvious answer, and there are signs that that shift is starting to take place. Plant-based foods are now a multi-billion dollar industry. In the United States, sales of plant-based meat replacements surged 20% during the pandemic. These products aren't a total fix, of course, and they do present their own problems. Soy protein has been linked to deforestation in South America, for example. So what can be done to find the next great protein that can feed the planet, but not destroy it? For that, some are turning to the ocean. If you ask the ocean this really simple question, you're like, okay, what does it make sense to grow? The ocean says to you, why don't you grow things that you don't have to feed and don't swim away? The story of a regenerative ocean farmer, that's today on Heat of the Moment. I'm John Sutter. I met Brent Smith once before. I spent some time on his boat as he made his way down the coast from Connecticut to Manhattan to take part in the 2015 People's Climate March. A few things struck me about Smith right away. Here was this guy trying to reorient the way that people think about and use the oceans, yet he's not really an environmentalist or a foodie. I also found it fascinating that he's a person who spends a ton of time out on the water, yet he doesn't know how to swim. Yes, I don't know how to swim. But uh, <laughs> most fishermen, northern fishermen, don't know how to swim. Like, what are we going to, like, you know, we say it prolongs your death. But I'm also allergic to shellfish. So I like, this is a, like how dumb a job for me. Like, I'm allergic to shellfish. I can't swim. I don't like kelp, right? And I don't like hanging out with environmentalists all the time. <laughs> and here you are. It's funny because I don't think of myself as an environmentalist. Then it's cause just culturally where I come from. My parents were American, but I was born and raised in Newfoundland, Canada, a little fishing outport. It was the most eastern point in all of North America. And you can imagine it was like the it was the ultimate artisanal fishery. It was the fishermen's co-op next door. All the houses were painted with leftover boat paint, so like greens, oranges, reds. We were selling cod tongues door to door. And all I ever wanted to be was a fisherman. And I, you know, I look back and I wonder why, you know, why didn't I want to be an astronaut or, or something? And it was because I'd see them go out in the morning and they own their own boats. They have these self-directed lives. They succeeded and failed on their own terms. And they had this pride of feeding their country, right? It, it just seemed to me as a little kid, it was a soul-filling job. So, so that's what I did. And I dropped out of high school, much to my parents' horror, and headed out to sea at the age of 14. So what was that like when you started, when you first headed out at 14? Was it what you imagined when you saw these guys sort of leaving the coast? It was a rough 
time in the fishery, uh, meaning, you know, there were there were guys that, I remember one guy had, his lung didn't work because he'd been shot. I remember telling stories about buying off judges. There was a huge amount of drugs moving through the boats. You know, I always say there's heroin stuck in that herring, and that's always been a part of the fishery. But, you know, I grew to it. You feel, you know, this just incredible mix of, like, humility of being on the sea. I worked 364 days a year hauling traps right through the winter and the summer months. And then also this incredible solidarity of just being like part of a, a tribe, really, of people that are out there chasing fish around the globe. So what did that feel like at the time? I imagine it, it was, it sounds like dangerous in some ways, exciting. What was your perspective then versus, you know, what you know now about like kind of the bigger picture of what's going on with fisheries? In the 1980s, and I think all of society was in a like a boom of resources, right? And it just seemed like the fish were endless, and we could just hunt and hunt the seas forever. So that was it was so different in that now I still want that job, like a climate job that we can write and sing songs about that's soul filling, hmm. but one that is not extractive. But I just didn't have an awareness then, and you know, it just wasn't a discussion in the industry. And now it's you know. It talked about all the time on the boats, you know, how, where the fish are, how, whether we should be fishing and what the industry should look like. What was going through your mind at the time? I imagine it's amazing life being out at sea in that way. Yeah, but I'm wondering if you reflect on it differently from your perspective today. Yeah, I mean, you know, although I see my life as one of, you know, ecological redemption, I don't regret that time. I mean, you know, a lot of people treat sort of fishermen and coal workers. So those of us that were working in the extractive economy almost as criminals, like we're to blame. Mm. But we weren't to blame. Society was to blame. The captains of industry, governments that were subsidizing large factory fleets. And I just was doing something I loved. And fishermen are, you know, the last hunters on earth for a commercial food. And we should really, really honor that. It can't uh, look and act the same way, but it's a beautiful way to make a living. I'm really glad you said that. I think that's a super important distinction between people who are doing the work right, whether it's a fisherman or a coal miner, and the industry that is driving that and asking for it and supporting it. Was it a moment that led to sort of a change of career and change of direction for you? Or tell me a little bit about what happened, because you're no longer fishing in the same ways that you were. So when I was on the Bering Sea, the cod stocks crashed back in Newfoundland. And that was one of the first big collapses of the fishery. 30,000 people thrown out of work. It was the largest layoff in Canadian history. And it is amazing to see an economy built up over 100 years just decimated overnight, like fishermen walking like hungry ghosts on the streets, canneries emptied and boats beached. And that had a huge effect on me. There had been many people talking about overfishing in the environmental conservation community, but like you know, they presented it as birds, bees, and bears, just like they talk about climate change. <laughs> and that's that does not resonate with those of us that are trying to make a living. But what I realized when the Codstocks crashed was like, oh, there aren't going to be any jobs on a dead ocean. Like, of course, there won't be any food, but there actually won't be a job. So this is kitchen table issues. And that's when that Achilles heel of environmentalism, right, jobs versus the environment, that just dissipated. And I realized that I had to figure out a way to work with the ocean, be a steward in order to make a living on a living planet. Hmm. That's a big realization, right? The no jobs on a dead ocean and to align in some ways with environmentalists who had seemed to be at odds with you and the fishing community previous to that. When was this and, and what was that like for you? 
there's this moment of hopelessness that you think, like, this is the end of a way of life. So for me, first it was filled with sadness and seeing a culture begin to disappear, right? You know, like suddenly the songs shift to the cod being gone. And, you know, you go to Newfoundland and that's that's a refrain you're hearing all the time in the in the bars and the shanties that are sung now. And that's just absolutely heartbreaking. That makes me also think about, quote, just transition for people who work in fossil fuel industries, but also in fisheries, frankly. And what happens to workers who will be laid off as jobs change or might need retraining or that kind of thing. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. I mean, I'll tell you what a just transition is not. There's a story we always pass around in Newfoundland, which is, you know, the the fish plant closes and this woman from New York comes up and she's going to repurpose the cannery and hire everybody and bring jobs back to the community. And the community asks, okay, this is so exciting. There's a meeting and they ask, what's the, you know, what are we going to be making? And she says, seatbelts for pets. (laughs) And that's not a just transition. That is a soulless, empty job, right? And we don't want that. We're not going to go to work for that. The other side of what just transition isn't is this other story that's told, which is a fisherman gets a great buyout. His boat is beached. It's a really great chunk of money. Um, He buys a new truck and every morning he wakes up at four, drives down to the docks and drinks himself to death, right? This isn't about money. So it's not about any job and it's not just about cash. This is actually about a meaning and culture. And those jobs that need just transition are those jobs that people write and sing songs about. Like the farmers, the coal workers, the steel workers, the fishermen, there's a reason they have these iconic roles and there aren't any good songs about lawyers out there. There are tons of good songs about fishermen and, and uh, farmers and, and co-workers. And so those are the jobs we need, those soul-filling jobs. And, th- and the question is why? Like it's agency that there is a deficit in the economy. So I've, I've seen you described as a, a 3D ocean farmer. Can you tell me what you, A, if you'd like to be described that way, and, and B, like what does that mean exactly? Yeah, so I mean it's funny. The industry is new enough that we're still searching around what to call it. Now, you know, I'm thinking of myself much more as a regenerative ocean farmer, very much like the regenerative land-based farming. And I think what makes it different, if you ask the ocean this really simple question, you're like, okay, what does it make sense to grow? The ocean says to you, why don't you grow things that you don't have to feed and don't swim away? (laughs) And as soon as you start thinking the ocean is a unique agricultural space and not growing around markets, then as soon as you take that view, there are 10,000 plants in the ocean, hundreds of kinds of shellfish that require zero inputs. And that's really powerful, not only environmentally, but also uh, from a farmer's perspective, it just means lower overhead and less capital to get started. And we actually sent a producer to survey Brent Smith's ocean farm. So this hauler can haul a lot of weight. His farm manager, Jill Pegnataro, demonstrated how they use a pulley to harvest the kelp. And so when you think of our farms, I uh, think of it as almost like an underwater garden. We have anchors on the edges of the farm and then ropes up to the surface to buoys and then horizontal lines down below a rope scaffolding system. And from there, we just grow as many crops as we can. We grow our kelp, which is a type of seaweed, scallops, mussels, oysters, and really take a polyculture approach. And there are a couple benefits to this. One is that it's all underwater, so it's a low aesthetic impact. Like, you come out, I run these eco-tours, you come out 
to the farm and there's like nothing to see. It feels like a total <laughs> ripoff. Well, you've been there. It's like there's just some buoys, right? People are expecting to see all this stuff. Uh, but that's good. The oceans are these beautiful, pristine places and we really want to keep them that way. So that low aesthetic impact is really key. There was a great study that came out that showed if you were to take less than 4% of U.S. waters to farm seaweed, so networks of farms up and down the coast, you could offset the entire agricultural carbon emissions of California. Mm. And importantly, it's scalable. Like in climate solution space, we're caught between small is beautiful, sort of that Mm. Brooklyn artisanal food, Hudson Valley sort of small scale farming, which is wonderful, but it doesn't scale to have big impact. And then the other side is that big is necessary is what we're being told. You have to scale to address climate change. And I think there's there's something in between, which is really models around scaling for replication and using natural production, like cultivating kelp um, to sequester carbon and nitrogen, things like that. So we really believe in the scale, but we really want to do it the right way. Tell me a little bit more about your vision for what like happens with the kelp. Like, Is part of it that it becomes a product that is like more used or eaten by people? Or it sounds like part of the idea is to grow kelp for kelp's sake in the sense that it, it keeps carbon in the ocean or, or stores it in the ocean yeah. floor. If I were to like wave a magic wand and, and sort of imagine what the industry could be at scale, uh, it would be a reimagining of the marine protected zones. Like marine protected zones right now is a strategy. You don't touch them. It's conservation and you let them be and you shouldn't do any activity. And I think that's actually a form of climate denial. Like you could do conservation on the entire oceans and they'd still die because of climate change. Like you need some activity breathing life back into the oceans. And so what I think where the the future is is let's call them blue carbon zones where you take 2,000 acres um, and you do partial reforestation you're growing food um, uh, uh, you're doing artisanal fisheries and ecotourism and then you replicate these new national monuments blue carbon zones up and down the coast like I think that's that's the way we turn our oceans into a into a real force for climate solutions mm-hmm. on the farming piece of like what do we do with the kelp the powerful thing about it and like I'm not a kelp eater I'm not interested in it. I would never eat it. Like, eat, like that's not me. So last year on my farm, part of my crop went to um, kelp burgers, kelp pickles. Then another part went to fertilizer and compost, and a third part went to making uh, bioplastics. And that's what's exciting. Like the whole leaf strategy means that as an ocean farmer, I can sort of juggle and, and plan for these various uh, markets and opp- opportunities. Have you tried the, the burgers that have kelp in them? Yeah, they're actually, I mean, yeah, you don't want me advertising for your f- food, <laughs> but like they're actually really good. So we've been on this long, long journey of trying to make kelp delicious. And up until four or five years ago, you kind of get like, yeah, I'd eat this, right? <laughs> you know, this kelp pickle. Like yeah, kelp noodles and you know the kimchi and all this sort of stuff, which is all great, but you don't have people being like, "Oh, I want that," right? <laughs> Let me order that. <laughs> right? yeah. I actually came up with this term way back: kelp is the new kale, which was like the biggest mistake I ever did. Right? <laughs> because and all it was, I was on the boat, and these Yale students came out from the Yale farm, and they all had these kale shirts on, and I was like, "Whatever, no, who, who wants kale? Kelp is the new kale." And then that was the thing: we made up shirts that said that, and then it became this term. And I think that set things on the wrong trajectory. Hmm. Kelp is 
something else. It has different challenges, but I think it has a more potent power in the era of climate change to really create this climate cuisine and be center of the plate. But the kale trajectory of rabbit food to sort of a standard microgreen that's accepted, kelp just isn't that journey. So the great thing is we can make it, not me, but you know, it can be made delicious. We're in this culinary moment where chefs are specializing in making disgusting things delicious right (laughs) like they are they are making these climate cuisines of like based on what the earth can grow what the ocean can provide and that's what they're put on earth to do like if you can't make kelp delicious at this point as a chef like you got to quit your job (laughs) right you got to go do something else like you're put on earth at this moment to do this now figuring out the economics of it that's a challenge across the board. How do we figure out to get it in the water to people's mouths and, and make sure that it's a profitable industry? That's always a challenge. Yeah, so I want to ask you about that. Like, Can you kind of describe the scale of your farm, like your operation? And then what would be, again, in like kind of a magic wand sort of way, like what would be helpful? Like what what is the actual scale that you think is needed in terms of kelp as a carbon sink and trying to help you know, the world get towards carbon neutrality as quick as possible. Yeah. So my farm is, it used to be larger and it's actually smaller now. It's 10 acres and I'm growing more food than I was before. And it's a mix of shellfish and kelp. Kelp is the winter crop. And we increased yields by a factor of five last year with new farm designs. I mean, that's one of the things, the architecture of farming underwater is really important, right? You want to be a willow, not an oak. You don't want to like fight the seas. You want the waves to come and the storms to go, your farm to bend and sink and then pop back up. And so um, in 10 acres with the with the five, five line systems, we're able to do about a quarter of a million pounds. Uh, the trouble with kelp is it hates oxygen, hates air. So you take it out of the water, it needs to be uh, processed in the first eight hours. And think about that. You've got a couple weeks at the end of the season where you're pulling millions of pounds of kelp out of the water and the the seasonal infrastructure you need to dry that is a huge challenge i think some companies are coming along to really um, solve that problem which is good because i you know i don't want to leave the boat i just want to drop the stuff off at the dock and go back (laughs) in the water i mean so it sounds like from what you're saying like this is a significant part of again this kind of climate math right if you're able to with ocean farming offset, uh, like a sizable amount of, of CO2 emissions. I think you, you said uh, like equivalent to like agriculture in California, which is a, a lot. I, I guess I wonder what it's like for you when you think about like the scale of, of what's going on, if it's like an exciting challenge or if it is daunting and frustrating that there's just, you know, so much pollution that's still happening in terms of the atmosphere and a lot that needs to be drawn back. I will say that you know, where the hope comes from at this point is that humans are pretty good when their backs are against the wall and we get really good at things quickly. So for, you know, the, what happened with fishing was we got too good at fishing, right? And let's just get too good at climate solutions. Mm. But uh, what I'm actually worried about is that we de-link addressing climate change with addressing inequality mm. and sort of the deep injustices in our economy. Like, the exciting thing about this is that we kind of have a blank slate and we can do food right. We can do agriculture right. And we actually build something beautiful out in the ocean. And if we have to keep link, like solving climate change can, we can draw down carbon while we lift up communities. And if we keep those together, we'll get the political buy-in we need for policy and for armies of people going out there every day with their blue collar innovation to address climate change. And for people who are listening to this and are kind of maybe thinking, um, 
okay, like what is my relationship to these issues? Like, you know, we're all implicated in the climate crisis in one way or another, but who are thinking about the the products that they buy from the ocean maybe? Um, I, do you have any advice for them? I think it's great if people act as consumers, uh, but I don't think it's enough. In this era of climate crisis, we really need to, you know, rethink our roles as as citizens. So for my sector, what it means is really asking people to rethink uh, their relationship to the ocean. Like, this isn't about building seawalls or fleeing the coasts or just seeing as a recreational space, but turning around, looking at the ocean as a place for opportunity, send your kids to regenerative ocean farming school, get involved in the policy, go invent the new tractor of the sea, which doesn't exist, by the way. If anybody makes it, I really want to buy it. There's just all this opportunity to get involved, and I think more and more people making it their life's work will really pay off. That's Brent Smith, an ocean farmer and co-founder of the nonprofit Green Wave. Next week on the show, we turn to the energy capital of the U.S., Gillette, Wyoming, to see how that coal community is beginning to think about moving its economy away from fossil fuels. The solutions are very local and they're very personal. Some people may want to do something else, some people may not. And that is a very personal decision for whatever worker you're talking about. That's next week on Heat of the Moment. Heat of the Moment is a partnership between foreign policy and the climate investment funds. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin, Rob Sachs, Scott Andrews, Dan Efron, Laura rossbrow Tellum, Claudia Tady, and Zimone Perez. The Climate Investment Funds is a nonpartisan champion of climate action. Political views and opinions expressed in this series do not necessarily represent those of the Climate Investment Funds, foreign policy, or their partners. This is a big week for the climate. Leaders from all over the world are meeting in Glasgow at the Conference of the Parties, also known as COP26. It's an important time to stay up to date on the latest news coming out of the COP. And one of the best ways to do that is with a foreign policy subscription. We have a special deal just for you. Head over to foreignpolicy.com to sign up and use the code HOTM for heat of the moment to get a 10% discount. And of course, as always, make sure you click that subscribe button to get updates about heat of the moment. And thanks for listening.